Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run, contrary to what you might believe, but it's got more to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits and so much more. And these will eventually lead to improved athletic performance. Now, if these are areas that you would like to improve on, then we would love to help you. I've currently got availability to take on a few clients, and my wife, Beth, who's a certified life coach, also has some availability. So, depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered. And you can find contact details in the show notes below. This week, I'm chatting with a gent who is probably one of the best triathlon coaches we have seen working with Olympic triathletes. I first met Darren Smith when he was appointed as head coach for Scottish Triathlon back in the early 2000s and our paths crossed at regular coaches meetings at British Triathlon. After four years at the helm, Darren left Triathlon Scotland and set up his own private nomadic triathlon group, which became known as the D-Squad. At the 2012 Olympics in London, he had six triathletes from six different countries competing in the triathlon event. and. I think Jack Maitland, who was my guest last week, might have had something close to that um, in Rio. Um, But Darren was probably the first. He gained a reputation for taking triathletes with an average swim and turning them into great swimmers and world-class triathletes. As an example, in 12 months, he guided Annie Howe, who you might know better from Ironman Triathlon, from a World Triathlon Series world ranking of around 60 to second place. Among the many topics, we spend a lot of time discussing swim technique and why triathlon swimming is very different to the pool and requires a different technique, the importance of working on running technique, whether gym-based strength training has any value for triathletes, total training load, overtraining markers, and how to build consistency over many months. So, instead of me waffling on, let's hear from Darren. Oh, welcome to the show. It's been a long time, but... Here he is now, Mr. Darren Smith. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Uh, very much appreciate it, um, the chance to chat to you, Simon. Yes, it's. Uh, I think we were just reminiscing there, Darren. It's uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago since we last crossed paths, isn't it, working for British Triathlon? Mm. Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah. You, you, were, um, you were head uh, head coach for Scottish Triathlon at that point, I think. Yes, yeah. Which was a fabulous time for me. I learned um, I learned a lot of things, and um, it really set me up for the future. Well, obviously, you'd got some triathlon background to have got that job in the first place. So, c- can we rewind a bit um, to your early years where you picked up your first sort of coaching experience? Were you were you a competitive sportsman at all um, when you were growing up in your in your teens um, or early twenties? Yeah, I guess like most Aussies, were pretty athletic and uh, active given the given the weather conditions and the beach is not far away and so forth i i was introduced to triathlon through some friends i'd been off um to adelaide to study a phd in exercise sort of physiology and um i just happened to meet up with some guys and go running um before too long they they asked me if i could um bike ride and so the next minute, I went in a team's event for a duathlon, mm-hmm. 
um, the next year, we, which we won, and um, they obviously thought I was doing okay. The next year, they asked me if I could swim, and I said, well, yeah, um, can't anybody? Um, <laughs> and then so we went in the triathlon uh, relay, and we did well there. And um, it wasn't too much longer that, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, I can, I seem to be okay at this sort of stuff, so I might start training a bit. Um, and then soon after that, they worked out that I was doing a sports science postgraduate and I should probably know more about coaching than they do. And so they asked me to coach them soon after. So I actually had my first international athlete go over and race in a French French Grand Prix club in 1993. Okay, so that's an early starting triathlon coaching then there wouldn't have been many uh there wouldn't be many other triathlon coaches for you to pick the brains of them would there no i think in australia there was um cole stewart maybe cole, cole stewart and brett sutton and okay. um uh in the uk and sort of europe um greg gregoire melee yeah who is now a sports scientist he was at one stage the hp for GB. He I was. From mem- yes. Yep. And um, so they, did, they were probably the role models at the time. Did you ever come across Chris Jones? Because I think Chris was the first full-time tri-coach working with an elite group of athletes in the UK. Yeah, I came across him um, once I was appointed in Scotland. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that's interesting then. So um, were, were, you able to, uh, were you able to pick the, bre- the brains of, of Brett and Cole? Um, a little bit. They're pretty cagey individuals. Um, I did finish my PhD. I ended up getting a job. Um, I was just about to go and race in France myself, um, but I got offered a job at the Australian Institute of Sport, which is probably similar to your EIS mm-hmm. that you have over there. And um, as part of my job uh, with um, the physiology department, I, I actually went and was the sports scientist for Brett Sutton when he was the Australian national coach. And I think that was back in 96. Okay. Okay. Yep. So I, I, um, were you based in Canberra then? If you were yes, AIS? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's it. So I, I was doing a little back, a little bit of background reading and I read somewhere that the, uh, the, the significant influences on your, on your coaching style and uh, early days were, were Brett and Gerard Turetsky. Was Turetsky the coach for Popov? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty fascinating guy. So yes. Yeah, I mean, um, Popoff used to swim, you know, the three-time uh, what Olympic gold medalist at the 100 mm. metres used to swim uh, in the pool about 100 metres from where I used to work. So, yeah, here I was uh, wandering off and watching Popoff swim at lunchtimes. And very mm. interestingly, um, Gennady, he spoke to me about why he was changing a another sprinter um, from a you know, the classic high elbow position recovery to a straight straight arm position. And so I had those type of discussions and his name was Michael Klim. (laughs) And he went on on and did pretty well, world champs. Um, But even those discussions actually had me thinking very much about our sport. And, um, you know, as as you know, I, I helped improve a number of people in their swimming. And um, so I took I took reference from even Gennady back in the early 
90s, mid 90s, um, uh, talking about how he changed the overarm um, recovery phase of a of a sprinter, mm-hmm. and I actually used the same thought process. It was really what he was doing was changing the um, center of mass and center of buoyancy of that individual mm-hmm. who just happened to have pretty heavy legs for a sprinter. Mm. And move the centre of uh, mass forward. Okay, so lifted no. lift lifted the legs and reduced uh, drag. I sort of understand the principle. Can you can you explain how they did that or how he did that well, in, in terms of changing the? Re- is that are you talking about the arm recovery there? Then yes, that's right. So imagine yeah. throwing. Uh, what do you weigh? Uh, what what's the weight of your arm? Um, imagine just nicely placing it forward in the high elbow recovery position, mm-hmm. and there's not that much momentum. Mm-hmm. Imagine throwing it like a cricket bowling action okay. over the top. Yeah. And you've got a weight maybe eight to 10 kilos and it's moving over the top. Okay. And so that just that weight uh, thrown with your energy yeah. would change the center of buoyancy versus center of mass of the body because you've got this eight kilo weight mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah, and that's going to have a impulse, which um, which moves the center of mass uh, and center of buoyancy a little bit different to what you might if you just you know moved carefully. You know, in the old mm-hmm. days, you carefully mm-hmm. lifted your elbow, you carefully placed the hand in the water, and so forth. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of momentum, and um, Gennady, as smart as he was, worked out that he could lift um, Klim's legs and reduce reduces um drag coefficient um by just changing how he did a different um recovery so i imagine that uh, there'll be some listeners um thinking now oh so if i just change to a straight arm recovery and work on the speed of my arm recovery that's going to change the sense of my mass and mm. lift my heavy legs that i'm always complained about but it's not just that is it there's got to be some other mechanical changes as well that that one thing won't change that well, that on its own will make a very significant difference. And also, would you like to swim next to somebody who has their arm going over like a bowling, um, or would you prefer to swim next to somebody who has their a nice, neat high elbow recovery? Mm. Yeah, and of course, you you definitely wouldn't want to. You're mm. more intimidating as well. So, look, nobody in the first pack or in triathlon swims with a high elbow recovery. Nobody. Mm-hmm. But why do we teach high elbow recovery mm. and early early glides, S-shaped pulls, all that sort of stuff? And the answer is, well, you should never have. And um, I mean, yeah, I was I was probably just an early responder and and watched and learnt these type of things. But but what's interesting there is that you know I I started triathlon in 1987 and I started coaching over here in 1995 and and like you there was there was no triathlon coaches really then. Um, I did. I did meet up with Chris Jones fairly soon. He 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 wrote to me about some strength training stuff, and we got we got connected, and uh, and that was interesting. But there wasn't really anybody else. And so, for triathletes, and I chat, Jack chat, Jack mentioned this the other day when I spoke to him. Protege of yours, Jack Maitland. Um, that when he started, he had to go to Robin Brew for some swimming because Robin Brew was a swim coach, and he had to go and find yes. a running coach for running, and then you had to go and find a cycle coach there. Um, 
And of course, then swim coaches used to training people in a pool with a high arm recovery. So that's that's how most triathletes started mm. with with those mm. swim skills from swim coaches. So you must have been one of the first people that was thinking about triathlon as a separate sport, not just a sport with swimming, or a sport with um, average swimmers. Yes, indeed. Because because we we are working with people who are average national class, even at the best athletes we have are just natural national level and they've never swum or run enough to make anything flow you know they just haven't done the miles and mm-hmm. so they're quite amateur really but yeah. they're elite when you put it all together mm-hmm. but in any one discipline they're not that great you know yeah apart from robin brew of course he was an olympic record holder but he was probably the only one wasn't he I mean, there's been people come from um, high-level sporting backgrounds and transition across, and, yeah, they're the ones who have done plenty of work in the past. But they normally have to de-emphasize that individual sport to do triathlon, right? Yes, absolutely. So they end up coming a little bit further back to the mean. (laughs) Yeah, well, Jack and I talked about Beth Potter and how she's had to sort of forego a little bit of her running to pick up her swimming and cycling to get to Mm. where she's currently at. So that's a very good sort of current topical example i um jack and i um put together this uh document when we first started with the talent id program back in the early 2000s i can probably still find it um, and it talks about the differences between two swimmers your traditional swimmer and um big and tall big feet long reach big powerful kick able to glide at the front but has got enough of a kick in between to keep the momentum whereas your small triathlete small stature probably got a poor kick stiff ankles um doesn't have the muscle power in the upper body to create that momentum and mm. therefore one needs a one, one can do a style a catch-up style of stroke and the other one should be directed more towards this faster turnover um two beat kick um and I thought we were smart then. And then, but now I've seen that you were uh, you wrote a paper on this, and I think perhaps Jack had got some influence from you when we were discussing this. Possible, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually work with Jack. I'm not sure if you mentioned, but you know, the Commonwealth Games were coming up, and I had a little crack at trying to sort out a couple of um, bits on Jack. And mm. yeah, yeah, swimming was one of them. Um, we used to say we'd cut to the chase or uh, get rid of the BS, the bullshit um, front end. Um, you know, the most efficient way of um, swimming for somebody his size. You see it all the time now, women's distance freestyle. Nobody swims with high elbows. They've all got two to four to six beat kicks. Mm-hmm. They're um, throwing their arm over. They're straight into a catch, a bit like a sprinter used to do it. Mm. there's no there's no fluff at the front end like there used to be but you know there were some remarkable athletes over over the time right simon lessing had a stroke rate of like 32 mm. and could but he was enormously talented mm. so some people it really doesn't matter what you do but for most folk and for the folk that i used to work with who you know quite a number of them didn't have specialist swimming backgrounds and weren't really as um, linear, tall and linear as as what you'd mentioned. Um, there's not too many Beth Potters or Gwen Jorgensons around that are that quite linear. 
And um, so I work with a, a whole range of folk who, you know, I had to find answers. And that's probably what I learned the most out of being in Scotland. Mm. Because as you'll recall at the time, there, there weren't many role models in Scotland in sport, let alone in triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, no offence to Britain, but the swimming skills being taught were pretty average. You know, the old S-shaped pool that takes your hand way, way wide. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, but what I did um, get instead of where I'd actually just been, which was I'd started the Queensland Academy of Sport, and I'd had a huge number of very talented juniors and under-23 athletes uh, rock up, but all of them thought they were geniuses. They all and their coaches, um, they all were operating about 70%, I would say. So, you know, I literally, I threw in that job. It was living in the Sunshine State. It was working with hugely (laughs) talented juniors and triathletes in Australia. But I was a bit bored because um, none of them were giving me 100%. They were all operating at 70%. And you know, as a coach, working with people who gave you 70%, it's just, it's no matter how talented, it's mm. just not, it's not real. Mm. It's not fun. And um, so I went looking um, for an alternative and that alternative was with no disrespect, probably the worst place I could find, <laughs> which was Scotland. And um, that was to see whether I could be really any good. And because at the time, there were no superstars, there were no really good athletes, no offense to Jack, but, you know, um, I was an age grouper bordering on pro and I was probably the same level as Jack, Mm. Um, but I'd chosen coaching as a career and he was the best guy at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we started with a group that were just keen and you know, some names, um, Bella Bayless. Yeah. Katrina Morrison. Mm-hmm. Lou, we mentioned before, Lou Edmonston, who who went on and podium with Ironman. Um, Fraser Cartmel. Yeah, I remember his, Fraser. Yeah. His his brother Blair, who's now mm-hmm. a coach within the British system. Yeah. Um, Gavin Noble, who's the chief admission uh, of Ireland, um, coming up. Um, Sarah Gross who's gone back to Canada and runs the podcast and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've probably forgotten quite a few, but there's there's a bunch, right? And um, Alice Hector. Yeah, I remember. Well, I've um, talked to, I, spoke to, I spoke to Alice recently on the podcast because she's gone in a completely di- different direction now from triathlon. She's a physique competitor hitting the weights every day. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing, Amazing transformation. Yeah. She, she's not yeah. linear any longer. No, no, she's gorgeous. And um, yeah, she always has been and hardworking. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was lucky enough to work with those guys. And and none of them were good as juniors. None of them were particularly good. We got them, I think we improved them quite a lot on average. And it was kind of across the board. So, um, but I had to, I had to start from scratch, right? Um, I had to teach all of them how to swim properly. I had to teach all of them how to run properly. So that's where I really learned by by being in a place that, you know, I was going to sink. If I just gave them fitness training, Yeah, uh, I was going to sink. There was nothing, nothing was going to be substantially different 
So that was great work experience. You know that 10,000 rule? That mm -hmm. was me doing my deliberate practice. Yeah, Scotland must have been about as far from comfortable in Australia as you could get, really, apart from Iceland. Um, would have been a big shock to your system and your wardrobe. Uh, yeah, look, um, you might know of a place called Aberfeldy, but... Um, well, that's where Jack's from, right? Oh, no, no, he's not. No, Jack's not from Aberfeldy, but I do know no, of it, it's, yeah. It's, it's one of the areas where um, we actually did the selection process. Mm -hmm. um, and ironically, the week before, I'd met a guy called Lance Watson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who on his own is a very famous coach. Um, yes. He coached um, uh, Simon Whitfield to the inaugural um, triathlon gold medal at uh, Sydney Olympics. Mm. He and I met for a coffee. He had Greg Bennett in his squad and, and so forth, and they were all on the Gold Coast where I was with my my QAS team. And we met for coffee and we got on really great and we were looking to do another meetup and he said to me, oh, I can't do next week. And I said, neither neither can I. I'm off to the UK. He said, where are you going? We we both went for the job at Scotland. <laughs> okay. So he's a, he's a Canadian and an Aussie meeting on the Gold Coast in the early 2000s as, as private uh, you know, coaches of triathletes mm -hmm. in the early days. And the following week, we both flew together and drove out to the snowy confines of Aberfeldy in Scotland. And it was February and there was snow everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I'd come from 30 degrees Celsius and did my interview in um, Scotland in the winter. Wow. Yeah, it was it was an amazing uh, weekend. So it was about three or four days. We were put through our paces. Uh, we had athletes there. We had coaches. We had um, the funding body, Sports Scotland, were there. Probably representative from Great Britain. Uh, try. Um, it was it was wonderful. Yeah, I, I do. Aberfeld is quite famous. It had one of the first long distance triathlons uh, that used to run every year up there. I don't, I'm not sure if I ever did that one, but it certainly had a good reputation. And um, Jack mentioned when we were speaking the other day that uh, you were the first coach. I mean, Jack had a Jack had a glittering past in hill running and mountain running, didn't he? You know, he'd won some of the top mountain races in the world he'd competed internationally for scotland as an orienteer he'd won some of the top fell races in the uk um but you were the first coach he said that actually um took the initiative and tried to help him improve his his running technique as well because he had a very low arm carriage and a very short mm. choppy stride didn't he yes that's been kind isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's just just my good memories of watching him run yes yes yeah there was um there was there was more in there than what he was uh, getting out of himself. Yeah, that's for sure. So when you meet a guy like Jack, who's got, you know, a CV like that, I mean, how do you start changing the technique? Because I guess there'll be some coaches listening to this that have athletes that come to them that are a bit overawed by because of their running past or their swim skills. But but most people that I've come across can uh, have got some improvement in the tank. Um, so how do you go about changing uh, somebody like that? Um, well, first of all, you've got to work out what makes the biggest difference. So, for instance, um, for him, it would not have been running probably that would have made the biggest difference. If we'd improved him 2%, um, 5%, you know, it would have taken quite a bit of work. But there was probably some easy gains in the technical sense, you know, because he was heel-toeing 
arms are down. Yeah, there was a number of obvious things that there's no distance runner in in the world, or put it this way, um, a tired a tired um, runner. You know, because you're tired when you run in triathlon, you're not fresh. So think of it as uh, the second half of a half marathon, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to find anyone looking like Jack did. Sorry to sorry to say that, Jack, but, you know, nobody looks like him who moves that efficient, very efficiently. Um, so I wouldn't have gone in too hard probably. I would have just tried a couple of things, but I wouldn't have bashed my head against the brick wall to change a huge number of things because probably it was the swim that needed the work. And I from memory it was quite quite a long time ago i think we we went very hard after you know that over the top throwing action straight into the catch get rid of all of the glide which are you know somebody at five foot six or seven really really shouldn't have mm-hmm. in in a choppy environment mm-hmm. with lots of drag around you it's one of the worst things you could possibly do is is glide right um, as a short body in all of that windmill uh, all of the swilling water, everything wants to slow you down. Mm-hmm. There's um, bubbles. You're sitting on feet. You know, do you grab the bubbles with your hand, or do you grab it with all of the forearm, the biggest paddle you could possibly put put mm-hmm. there in the water? So, yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have gone after those things probably before or at the same time as the a few little running low hanging hanging fruit bits. Yeah. I mean, you, you you know, you keep, and quite rightly, you keep going back to this thing about technique and technique and technique. And I know you were, a, a, you know, a huge, a huge proponent of improving technique. Um, I mean, obviously, you've got to improve fitness alongside, but, you know, what you're talking about is working with folks that we would, we as, as age groupers would consider elite swimmers. So for the average age grouper that's listening, who doesn't have that swim background, but he's keep he's keeps bashing their themselves to do intervals to get fitter. Yes. It, it seems to me like the wrong path, you know, because it, it's a lot of hard work to make some small gains for most people. Whereas there's there's a lot that can be done just through some improvements in technique. Um yeah, the the correct technique, right? You know, you can improve somebody's high elbow recovery. Mm-hmm. And I would argue nobody swims like that. And it's probably not very efficient for somebody mm. who wants to improve. But um, range of motion around the shoulders, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can see who has good range and, and there's no real reason why an age grouper shouldn't have pretty good range. Um, if you can't get into the catch because your range is poor, then no amount of fitness is going to help you. Um, so you might as well take a step back. If you can't plant to flex your ankles and you create more drag, then get the thickest wetsuit you can and don't kick, <laughs> right? I, don't create more drag. It'll I, I slow can, you down. I can remember that when Jack and I had the first people coming into the talent program, you know, most of them could swim in terms of meeting the performance criteria and getting around that sort of target time. They had to swim for, for 400 meters. Hmm. Uh, but some of them were struggling because they'd say, Oh, I'm tight in the shoulders. I've always been tight in the shoulders. And, and, um, 
I'm not a physiotherapist. Yeah, I was a strength coach as well, but I didn't have that assessment skill. So we involved a physiotherapist to look and do an, an do an assessment on everybody's shoulder function, range of movement in the shoulder, not not just the shoulder joint, but the shoulder complex, so the the upper back as well, and that sort of rotation and reach, um, t- to determine whether this lack of range of motion was, um, you know, skeletal or whether it was just muscular tightness. And nobody walked away knowing that they'd been born like that and they'd got some sort of, you know, naturally tight shoulders and they all went away with a mobility program and they all got yeah. better just as a matter of doing that for 10 minutes every day. Um, yeah, it was a big rocket, lesson. It's not rocket science, is it? No, it's not. It's not. But it was a big lesson to them all because they were. And these are young kids that are impressionable and growing up. You know, I have the same I have the same. um a discussion with adults who tell me now I've always been like this there's no way I can improve but everybody can improve you've just got to be prepared to direct your attention in the right places mm-hmm. it's the same Simon um, how many people were born with um, legs that are out at 45 degrees to each other mm-hmm. or you know or was it the adductor tightness or some other ITB tightness that made them walk or run like that yeah and how many injuries I mean, Great Britain would have been a superpower if if people didn't, their top athletes didn't run with squiffy feet, we'd call it, mm-hmm. right? How many months and years have you lost in training mm. for many of your athletes um, because of that squiffy feetness? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, nobody was born like that. It was just tension that is built up. And um, so I, what I figured was um, I saw a lot of athletes and um, I thought, geez, you know, a lot of coaches are doing a pretty good job of conditioning, mm. but having a PhD in physiology, you know, like the body really doesn't care whether it's five lots of 10 minutes or 10 lots of five or mm-hmm. two lots of 25. And so I think, I think it was pretty easy to be a conditioning coach. Um, the you know, the people who came to me were technically awful and um, well conditioned, but they went slow. So it was a kind of a no-brainer for me to go, okay, but the hard bit's not the conditioning. The hard bit, it, you know, there's way more potential for us if we look at the other stuff. And so ironically, in most of the years, I did very little physiology, even though my background was physiology. I did all the other ologies and I put put everything together um, at a pretty decent level. Very interesting and refreshing to hear you say um, that phrase, the body doesn't really care whether it's doing five lots of five or two lots of 10 or whatever. No. You know, because I, I again, I work mostly with age groupers and I feel like they spend far too long dwelling over well, should is this set better than that? The the research says that if you do four by four by four, that's not quite as good as four by eight, but four by sixteen doesn't get the same results. So, in that half an hour, they could have done one of them and got more more work. But at or, the same or, time, or focused on how they move, well, or something else, you know. Yeah, and and that that phrase, how they move, I have I spoke with them. Um, have you have you worked with Bobby McGee all the running coach? No, but I know him and I've seen him. Yeah, yeah. So I've had Bobby McGee on the on the um, show a couple of times, and also Matt Pendolo, who's a strength coach that works with him. Mm. And Bobby says, "Look, Simon, I, I, you know, people call me a running coach, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a. I help people to move better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about how people look when they're running in the second half of the triathlon. He said, "When uh, what I'm looking for is to try and improve the shape of an athlete when they get off the bike. And you can tell the athletes that can get into the best shape tend to run the better. So that's my goal is to help them get the best shape and work on their movement and work on their strength and their rebound and their ping to spring that enables them to run like runners as soon as possible as they get off the bike. And we, we do very little conditioning work, but we do a lot of strength, a lot of mobility and a lot of running drills. So it's a very similar approach to running that that you've taken with swimming. And running. And running. And, yes. And cycling. Yes. yes. Anything that needs, Simon, it was anything that needed sorting out was my thing. So learning to race, mm-hmm. the mindset, the fear of failure I learned from working in Britain. Uh, really changed the way I talk to athletes, mm-hmm. for instance, about outcomes. Um, I never once spoke to an athlete about winning or placing any place, never, ever. I saw so much fear when I was back in those early 2000 days with the kids from Scotland mm-hmm. um, that I just chose never to reward anything but effort and Throughout all my years and all that success, um, none of my athletes ever heard me say, you know, we need to get a win here or we need to be selected by doing A, B or C. It was simply, let's do a good job together and um, let's get you in good shape and capable of knowing what to do. And you go out and show the world what good work we've done. So that, that was it. Yeah, so that's that's a process focused um, approach rather than outcome focused approach. Definitely takes the that fear away a little bit, doesn't it? Um, and also and, rewarding effort. Yeah, and not and not outcome. So I would I'd ask um, people how they went, and they'd normally offer, you know, I came fifth, mm-hmm. and I said, well, yeah, that's fine, but you know, but how did you actually go? You know, like um, how did we how did we do? Um, of the things we were learning, how did we do? And um, yeah, you just had to reinforce that. So that, that's kind of how that was the ethos of how I coached. I read in an interview that one of the things you did to inform, um, sort of reinforce that process was to give athletes of scorecards. I don't know whether they were mental scorecards or actually physical things that they had to tick off mm. of mm. of of exactly those processes of things that they as an individual needed to focus on during the race about their start position on the po- on the blocks, um, their p- position at the first turn, you know, um, not losing the feet yeah. in front, you know, everything. Well, they'd come up in, in our pre-race discussions, but even before that on what, um, when we're doing a review as to what we're going to work on next, you know, um, how do you know what's, uh, what's the work on next? Um, and some, sometimes it's about improving the ingredient. So, you know, I'd talk about baking a cake. You can, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. next year we'll have better ingredients. If I work together with somebody, we'll have a better running style, better swimming, we'll have better ingredients, but we can still screw it up by worrying about the outcome or not putting in the bits that matter at the right time. You know, you can screw up a, a cake, can't you? Mm-hmm. Um, even if you got great ingredients, you just simply put the wrong thing at the wrong time, or you know, don't follow instructions, or and it's no different. And you know, as a coach, if you want to be good at something, you just follow a recipe of how to deliver something. Uh, any any people listening who are good at their job, 
will know as an accountant or a dentist or anybody. You know, it's it's simply learning your skills and delivering them. There might be pressure. You might have an important person walk into your office, but actually the job is the same really. Mm-hmm. Um, just attention to detail, do the steps, don't get caught up in the outcome. You know, it's just process, process, process. Can you do it or not? Have you done it a thousand times? Yes. Why can't I do it? There's no difference in the athletes you meet at an Olympic Games to the ones you meet 20 times a year. I fail to see that the Olympic Games has a different sport. Mm-hmm. Triathlon is triathlon. There might be more hills or flatter, you know, but fundamentally, have you done that sport before? Yes. Have you competed against these athletes? Yes. How many sessions have we done? Oh, thousands. You know, what's different? One put one foot in front of the other. The outcome could change your life, but guess what? You have no control over what anybody else does. So you just do a really good job by yourself. Mm. And that's that's how we did it. Go, just going back to this um, emphasis on technique a little bit, I, you know, getting on a bit now in years, like we all are, and finding that my body doesn't, doesn't like being smashed as much as it used or it doesn't doesn't cope with being smashed as much as it used to when I was younger and I've found that if I want to improve now or at least stay where I am which is probably the the better goal as I get older it's far easier on my body to keep working on my technique than it is to keep giving it heavy intervals you know I can recover quicker and I don't feel the aches and pains as much and I can probably keep going and sustain this lifestyle and activity for a lot longer but again it's a it's a still a, a very difficult message to get across because for a lot of people they have to they almost have to go backwards a little bit to start learning this new technique in order to to sort of make further better progress yes but um the counterpoint is um who uh in the elite ranks of swimming biking running any sport even triathlon move badly hmm. and very few of them move badly now they they move very efficiently they are nice movers. They swim well. Um, technically, there's not funky stuff all over the place. So, it's not fitness. It's it's a it's it's a it's a sport. If you want to keep going as a senior, then you can still improve. So, you you interviewed Sue the other day. I, Sue Reynolds. I did. Yeah, yeah. Seventy year old who I'm working with. Um, yeah, we're taking 20 minutes off her runtime in the next year, which is 25%. So yeah. I'm literally teaching her how to run. Um, but, yeah, she's she's worried about how her feet connect with the ground and her what her toes do and the gravity and all of these things rather than just trying to run. So mm-hmm. she's literally learning as a very senior athlete um, how to apply force to the ground for the first time ever. Mm. yeah lovely lady Um, lovely lady yeah if we if we want to make any difference then you know she's been coached by some pretty good people in the u.s and um yeah but we'll take heaps of time off Mm. i have no doubt um but we're exploring all of the other bits right we're not hammering the fitness she is doing more running but um we're not you know I can equally break it too, can't I, as a seven-year-old, um, if I give her too much running. So I've got to be modest with mm-hmm. the increases and the amounts. But um, there's lots of low-hanging fruit. So it can be done at any age. And, you know, for us who have some insight, 
Um, smashing yourself is not really the way to go. Range of motion control, muscle muscle control, control of how how you use other people in a race. If you were in a bike race, you you become smarter at holding wheels, don't you? Or mm-hmm. um, you know, or the consequence of you not holding a wheel is is more dramatic. As in, you get shelved, you're off. You were. Uh, he said that you worked with Brett Sutton at uh, an early part of your coaching career. Mm-hmm. Um, Brett's always, as as much as I've read, um, sh- not been a big fan of strength training, preferring to do it uh, in the sport. You know, using paddles in the pool, um, hills on the bike, running on running yeah. up hills. Um, yeah. where, where do you stand on that? Did that did that influence you in your approach, or did you sort of um, use your um, educational background sort of take a, a slightly different path well well you'd know as a strength coach that there was no um endurance sports um mm-hmm. uh um syllabus in the strength programs and strength um association <laughs> i i did my strength and conditioning course in australia in 96 and there was zero uh for endurance sport athletes within that program so you had to kind of make it up um so i did it as a as a former runner i couldn't ride a bike to save myself save my life um because i didn't have some muscular endurance um uh, capabilities so i went and went and did lots of hill reps and so forth in the early 90s and i created a bit of a monster so i became strong enough to push a huge gear in fact i'd look down in the middle of a race and i'd go geez i'd be nice if i had another gear and I was already in the biggest gear of my bike. And, um, and then, of course, what happened was my running suffered off the bike because I was stuck in too low a cadence. So, yeah, there was at the time there was a bit of um, playing with concepts. So strength endurance is great. Knowing how once you're really super strong, can you can you um, not kill your running legs by overgearing? Can you be smart enough to say, okay, I'm super strong. I can handle something like going in and out of a corner in the wrong gear. It won't hurt my legs. I'll be able to do it. But I shouldn't choose to do that just because I'm strong enough. So there was a bit of experimenting going on in the early days. And, and of course, um, different people respond to strength uh, in different ways. So, but global strength on the bike, seated hill reps, quite low reps, way lower than what you'd normally do. Um, if you wanted to get strength gains done and the return pretty rapidly, yeah, you could do it over four weeks and become pretty strong. It would take you six months or more work at high mileage to get the same strength. So, what would you choose as a coach to do? And my idea was. Um, to do high high loads, seated, but super high attention to detail, as in no figure eight knee movements. The cleats are always straight. The line between the hip, the knee, and the foot was always clean and straight. Mm. There was no pulling of the handlebars, only two fingers on the handlebars. The core was engaged. The glutes are already switched on. You know what I mean? Because you can screw somebody's back very easily by doing 40 RPM work up a hill of 5% slope Mm. if you don't have all of those other things engaged. And, of course, running injuries can come about because of the 
sloppy foot positions and you know the floating cleats they have these days Mm. and you're trying to do strength work but you've got a figure eight shape going on with your knee which affects your adductors and your itb tighten those and then of course you run poorly with feet that aren't straight afterwards because things are twisted out of alignment so you end up with a running injury which is actually bike related Mm -hmm. so i was i was there on the ground on my bike following athletes talking them through um you know the pedal strokes and how to do things properly so anyone from the early days back in australia you know i worked with daniela reef and lisa norden early Mm -hmm. days and carolyn murray yeah, we would do loads of that sort of strength work, but super high attention to detail. And would you would you have them in the gym doing any specific dry land work at all, or would it be on a, a needs must basis for each athlete? Yeah, so we did mostly whole body exercises. So somewhere between jack and yoga, through to calisthenics, you know, military type exercises. Um, yeah, just. You know, it could be anything from static holds in the scapula mm-hmm. because the scapula doesn't need to move very much, right? Mm-hmm. So we would do static sort of work because in the catch phase, your scapula hardly moves through to lots of um, plyometrics, skipping, mm-hmm. um, but not skipping, you know, landing forefoot. I was always a proponent of midfoot and then press through the heel. Even any any movement like a plyometric skipping mm-hmm. um step ups all of that stuff would always be done landing midfoot and then pressing through the heel because you'll know from your strength background that sprinters naturally do that they jump on a box they push through the ground to get up there by and large mm-hmm. and you get a triathlete to try and do that and they push off the ground with their toes magically try and get up there cheat all the time when step ups mm-hmm. um so we're trying to teach non-sprint or non-fast twitch people how to do things like the fast twitched guys do, mm. and but, and pushing pushing into the ground to move your body yeah. is just like a totally foreign concept mm. for most endurance athletes. Yeah, and not sprinters. But once again, we just come back to moving properly, don't we? All the time. It always goes back to that first principles. That's it. Yes. So when I teach them that, um, yeah, you press into the ground to get a reaction off the ground, they go, oh, my God, I've Mm. never seen this before. Why haven't I in 10 years of training already, haven't I seen anything like this? So I guess, guess, um, yeah, later on I went looking for even more um why is it the jumpers or you see a sprinter or a middle distance guy run next to a triathlete doing 400 meter reps and one guy is leaking energy all over the place Mm -hmm. and the other person's not so Mm -hmm. why is it that that person's not so yeah we went after everything that stops you leaking energy yeah i like like that uh like that analogy leaking energy That's true. Once you get a sprinter running next to a, even a 1500 meter runner doing 200 meter run throughs at 25 seconds, Mm -hmm. you look at one of them and they look literally sloppy compared to the other. Mm -hmm. And then you've, you've got the marathon runner or the triathlete and by and large, um, they look really sloppy too. Um, 
compared to the middle distance runner who looks sloppy against the sprinter. I, I was I used to go to Kona every year and I, I used to take um, a lot of time to watch the runners, you know, particularly coming out of transition and, and you know, in the elite elite uh, field. The, the people that always used to impress me most um, out of the females was Marinda Carfrey and out of the guys was Craig Alexander. They were both what I'd call very compact runners. They didn't appear to mm. be losing a lot of energy. They had that sort of forward lean, great yeah. foot contact. Um, you know, that, that I guess if you had a force plate and measured their contact time of the ground, it would have probably been less for them than for some of the others. They just had really good running mechanics straight off yes. the bat. Yes, absolutely. And there were a lot of people in Australia, Greg Welsh, I worked with for a little mm -hmm. while, um, Kate Allen, the yes. Athens winner, I took to Hawaii one year and she came fifth. Um, she also hit the ground uh, and worked with the ground really well. So there, there's historically been a lot of good athletes and you've got some right now, you know, with um, Georgia Taylor-Brown and um, the young fellow who's doing really well, um, Yi. Mm -hmm. You know, they do nice things with the ground, right? But they're pretty clean as well, aren't they? Mm. You know, there's no funky feet going on. There's no Brownlee or, you know, um, various others. Um, no Vincent Louis going yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, everything's clean. Mm. And uh, you can apply force in a pretty nice way. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's a, it sort of sounds like a strange concept for endurance athletes to be talking about applying force. But I've, if you ever see any of the force plate data, the fastest runners in any particular distance are always the ones who've got better uh, ground contact time mechanics, aren't they? But interestingly, and I'd spoken to Salazar, you know, the pretty famous, infamous mm -hmm. coach um, about mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, Dathan Rittime and, and so forth and, and um um the other athletes he worked with um he was you know it's not about minimizing your contact time you don't want to have a slow contact time but it's not about trying to minimize it it's about trying to get really good force within mm. a certain contact time mm. and also have that quite consistent across your legs mm. so no big 10% difference between the two so he was talking about Galen Rupp one year um to me he said you know, uh, within that contact time, we improved his force application by X percent. Mm. And also his symmetry was much better. So what he's really saying is we're not looking to minimize contact time. So don't do a slap or a, a tap on the ground mm -hmm. that is minimizing it. Make sure within a good period of time, you know, it might be 140 milliseconds, you're actually really applying a lot of force and make sure both legs are very similar. Yes. So I think I think the yes. message is, uh, by a lot of running coaches has been 
uh, or triathlon coaches teaching running has been about minimizing contact time. Mm. And they forget that it's not about minimizing. You don't want to have sloppy contact, but you also want to have lots of force being produced and put into the ground within a reasonable contact time. Yeah. So cadence or, you know, a focus on cadence, for instance, as a number, some have come across horrible examples of people who have come to me and and um, they've only been allowed to run at 92 cadence mm. because that's a miracle number. And I'd say, <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't look very good. And, you know, yeah, you when we do, we were using um, um, not force plates, but I had accelerometers you, you mm. put around your waist and yep. jump, mm. multi-jumps and single-legged jumps and so forth. Most of my athletes, they used to come in and jump at about, you know, 30 centimetres or so with double legs, but some of them were a little bit better, like Vicky Holland was mm-hmm. a bit better, but a single leg, it was absolutely atrocious. Mm-hmm. Most of them at down around 40, 40 to 45% of their double leg. Wow. But then over, you know, specific work and plyometric and stuff, we ended up getting uh, that 40% to be 70%. But 70% was now of a much higher level for a double leg than what they started with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, running's not about two legs at a time, is it? It's about one. And most people can't do a plyometric on one leg to save themselves. Mm. It's it's almost laughable. Mm. You obviously have shown a, a real willingness then to, to go into different sports and, and talk with coaches from, you know, specific swim, bike and run backgrounds. Did you go outside of those endurance sports as well and, and communicate with coaches in team sports at all? And did you did you ever apply any team sport principles, you know, lateral movement and multidirectional stuff just to build the resilience of your athletes or would that have been considered too much fluff? Oh, no. No, we did multi-discipline. Uh, no, I never really spoke to multi-sport, uh, sorry, um, team sport coaches very much. I mean... <laughs> Most of the programs didn't impress me very much when I had a look. Mm. But I did speak with Dan Paff. Yeah. You know, who is yep. you know, very yep. famous. Is, yes. Is it and, Altis? Um, is that his place, Altis? Yeah, he was the main education and driver of Altis and and mm. um and uh, athletics world or one of those places in Arizona one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went out and spent plenty of time with him uh, over the years. Um, also, Debbie Flintoff King's um, coach uh, and husband, uh, Phil King, in the early days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, and and being an ex-soccer player, you see soccer players move really well mm. as runners too. They they connect with the ground really quite well. And so we would have um, my athletes do things that they just shook their head at and they were pretty bad at. Um, it was multi-directional stuff. It was cross-country fell running to the extreme. Mm. Like the Scots the Scots went out to a place I started in um, southern Spain called Aguilas as yep. a training location mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. And um, we ran from ledge to ledge on sand. <laughs> it was nuts. It was nuts. But I did experiments. And I worked out how much extra they got at a certain speed from a month of doing that work, you know. It was extraordinary amounts of uh, running economy improvements. 
when uh, when I was working in uh, in the professional cricket world as a, as a fitness coach, we used to do a lot of ladder drills and hurdle drills. You know the little you know the tiny little hurdles, yes. do lots of yes. step over stuff. Um, yeah. And obviously, if you ever watch any videos of the team sports players training, they'll you probably see those a lot. So I brought them down to the track for one of our coaching weekends, you know, our, our talent ID weekends to use as a warm up before we did a run. And I gave them some very basic ladder drills, you know, lateral stuff going sideways. Yeah. Um, and it was like watching people with two left feet. Honestly, yes. there was, there was one or two people um, that got it quite quickly. There were some people yeah. who, you know, the, when you're thinking these kids are running three minutes per kilometer, Mm. But yet when you're getting them to do skipping drills, they've got the right knee coming up at the same time as the mm. right arms coming up. And they're just the lack of coordination and overthinking it instead of letting the body move naturally. Um, but but when I, if I'd have taken that to a group of cricketers or uh, academy rugby league players, that they'd have got it straight away because they just have that better hand-eye coordination and total body coordination. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So there's there's room for lots of multi-directional sport as a youngster. It's actually pretty healthy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it can set you up nicely. But you can still teach this stuff later. You can still teach it. And that's probably where I went and pushed pretty hard. So we didn't do lifting weights a lot, uh, although I did go through a phase, actually, hand cleans. We did hand cleans in the early 2000s with the Scots. I was less interested in what was happening other than the footfall. I was interested in what happened at the footfall of the hand clean. Mm. So less about less about moving the weight, more about the landing mm-hmm. and the alignment. So yeah, so I've done I'd explored all of that stuff. I just didn't find lots of value in it. Step ups um with heavy weights. I mean the transfer is the, that's the key, isn't it? The transfer. Yeah, and most people don't do the transfer very well at all. So you can mostly mostly people will cheat while doing step ups. Mm-hmm. They won't isolate. They'll use too much weight. Then the transfer is terrible mm. into say cycling. It's just not you know, it's just not the same. No, I agree. And and for me, the application of strength training is on a person by person basis. So if I've got somebody going to see the physio who's got um some issues around the shoulder complex firstly it's about improving range of motion because i I don't really see the point in making a muscle stronger if it can't move through a full range of motion first but then after that it's creating stability so that that shoulder can stay in the right position and the shoulder complex so that they can execute a swim stroke rather than just sort of folding like a piece of wet paper yeah Yeah. then it's about building resilience so that the, the athlete can turn up as often as possible to do the swim bike and run training and i i read an um i read a uh, a series of bullet points that katie ledecky's coach had written about her success and some of the principles that they applied and he said look we have a strength coach and his job is not to make her a faster or a stronger swimmer it's to make sure she turns up for as many swimming sessions as possible in the lead up to the olympics that's it so it's about building yes. resilience and he knows it that's his lane and that's what he does yeah End of. i mean Plenty of examples of um, swimmers who have a strength coach and they become stronger, but they actually go slower because they then slip. Mm-hmm. They're more powerful and more power in the water is not good because the paddle design is not very good. Your forearm, yeah. you know, so 
um, was it Grant Hackett? Grant Hackett and his coach, mm-hmm. and they were they went slower after they did strength work, like specific. I, I want to really improve my power, and um, the irony was they went slower. And, yeah, there was uh, one of them, one of the American sprint swimmers. I think he might have been the guy who got um, might have been the guy who got arrested in Rio. But there was some very popular videos of him on YouTube flipping tires and doing some CrossFit workouts and really going to town on this. But I don't think it actually, you know, to, to use that word transfer that you used a minute ago. I don't think it really had any transfer over to his swimming performance. But he looked pretty good on poolside. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So it's it's about uh, being an individual. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's go back to Scotland then, Darren. How long how long were you there? I was there for four years. Okay. Um, my wife was doing a PhD at the same time. She was also somebody I'd met at um, the Institute of Sport in Australia, and we, as a family, uh, it was a great great opportunity, and we're eternally grateful actually with the people we met there. We're still friends. Facebook friends and and friends with all of the folk that we worked with. Mm. So, so af- after that, so that um, what, what year would have that been roughly when you when you arrived uh, and when you decided uh, to leave? Yeah, just the start of the two um, thousands. So I took Steph Forrester at the time, mm-hmm. yeah, to Sydney Olympics, um, and then I finished up early two thousand and five. I went okay. back to Australia. Went back to Australia, and um, yeah, somebody I'd um, yeah look. I, so I'd I'd been the guy who started the Queensland Academy of Sport program a few years before, um, and uh, I didn't. There was no there was no room for me in Australia mm. when I got back. Okay, there was no job, no room. All right. In fact, I had a hard time even getting acknowledged as a high-performance coach within Queensland, uh, you know, the Queensland Academy of Sport I started. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on and started my own squad with my wife's blessing. And, um, yeah, the irony was uh, year one, I coached the world under-23 champion, uh, Danielle Reef. Oh, no, Lisa Norton. Mm-hmm. And the next year <laughs> I coached the, another under-23 world champion, Danielle Reef. And um, I still couldn't get acknowledged as a high-performance coach within Australia, even though, even though I'd coached two back-to-back um, under-23 champions. There, there was no enthusiasm to, to sort of go looking for another uh, head coach, performance coach role in Europe or something? Um, no. Look, um, I was smart enough to know that head coach roles are compromised, like very much compromised. Um, the the reason I did pretty well in Scotland is is because I wasn't Scottish, and I I liked the job, but I didn't need the job, so it meant that I could change things. Um, you know, just because Scots always do something a certain way doesn't mean it's world class. And no disrespect to the board at the time, but their middle managers in different other fields and had no expertise. In how to develop a program, so um, if I'd been Scottish, and I, because I'm Scottish, if I was Scottish and I wanted to be the national coach, I wouldn't have made as much progress as I did in Scotland, mm. because they would have wanted the job, they wouldn't have wanted to get sacked, you know. And frankly, I didn't really care, um, so, you know. 
<laughs> so I so, may change. So that goes back to the uh, coach coach being too occupied by the outcome rather than the process, right? Well, well, um, non-experts who are your board can have an influence on what decisions you make as a coach. Mm-hmm. And um, without the right board, then you're not given the freedom to do what's necessary to make people good. Mm-hmm. So um, also, you know, the opportunities at the time, there weren't so many opportunities at the time. Uh, I didn't see. Ben Bright had just been appointed at um, Great Britain. Uh, and yeah, so look, I was more than happy to start up. Um, there'd been a couple of years um, between when I had left Scotland and there were a couple of athletes like Ali Hector and and Fraser, Richie Nichols and so forth that had not really moved on at all. So I said to them that I would be starting a camp and I was in France and they can join for that year. And proudly, we got them onto something, you know, we mm. European medals or race medals, um, different continental cups or whatever it happens to be. So I, I actually had half of the Scottish kids back um, with me as a private coach. And then I had a few Aussies um, and, uh, and so forth. So I did a 10-week trip and I think I made 100 bucks a week. So I made a profit. And I was, um, yeah, it was my full-time professional start mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a coach. Building squads is always difficult. I mean, to some extent, your hands are tied a little bit when you're in Scotland, I guess, because you've you've got a limited field. But then once you have a free reign and people know about you and they're asking you if they can join your squad, there must be a temptation, particularly when you're starting, to just want to take everybody on to build the squad, but um, that doesn't always provide the cohesiveness and the, the right dynamics. Did you have any principles that you used to make sure that you got the right folks into the program and into your squad? Yeah, so the very early days, I guess, um, yeah, mostly they were rogues who never fitted into anywhere else. Um, Lisa Norton joins because Chris... Chris um, Jones, who you'd spoken to, uh, spoken about, had seen what I'd done in Britain, um, he'd uh, in in Scotland. He'd also been coaching um, Lisa for a year because he knew the Swedish people. Um, he was not no longer able to coach her because he worked for Britain British Triathlon, but he knew somebody who could look after her, and that was me. Um, when Kate Allen approached Brett Sutton. Um, Brett couldn't fit her in his squad, but he knew somebody who would do a decent job of putting her back together. So that was me. Um, and I did a good job with Lise that year, 2007. And um, I think she, yeah, the one won the, the uh, under-23s and she also won a World Cup at the time. And um, it wasn't long before I had um, Carolyn Murray who from Canada. Um, who is now the Paralympic uh, coach, and um, and Daniela Brief um, joined. And I had uh, a range of folk from a 14-year-old Aussie boy to, yeah, those girls um, who were going off to the Olympics mm. that later that year in Tokyo, uh, Beijing. But did, did you, did you, you know, you mentioned those people you're working with, but was there anything where you'd look at somebody and say, well, I don't think that personality is going to quite fit in with this oh, yes. group here? 
you know, yes. Um, yes. they're going to so they're going to be. They, I know they're a rogue, but they could be a bit disruptive, or you know, they're just not going to contribute. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, we, yeah, it probably developed a little bit further um, once I became a bit more successful, and um, also you could see whether some people were contributing. I mean, there's different behavioural profiles. We used the DISC profile, mm-hmm. and I would um, get to know my athletes very, very quickly. And if somebody applied, um, then I'd I'd know what uh, profile they formed. Uh, you can't have too many Ds. Ds are very directive uh, individuals who, you know, don't really give a shit about anybody else. Um, they're very, um, you know, they're focused. Uh, but you can't have too many. Equally, you can't have too many eyes. They're the ones who love social media and the la la and um, look at me. And um, and so we had a bit of a mixture uh, of folk I thought would possibly work together. Mm-hmm. But equally, um, I was at one time only picking one person per, per country uh, when it came to the females in particular. Um, just just so that um, I would be able to train them individually. Uh, you know, there's there's complications when you've got too many people from the same country mm-hmm. trying to make the same team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and and we also had a pretty strict protocol on uh, exiting. So, for instance, um, I I moved. Uh, uh, Daniela Reef, when she was number four in the world, I moved her from the squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, equally, Annie Hag, who was number one in the world in 2013 or 14, I moved her from the squad. Can you talk she about was number one? Can you talk about why that was? Well, the year before, she'd um, a year and a half before, she was like number 60th in the world. And um, yeah, look, um, she did a great job. We took her to number two in the world the following year. So it was massively successful and 11th at the Olympics, we made an Olympic team. So this, just, for then, those, just, just for people listening, this is while she was still racing on the WTS circuit, not before she, not when she transitioned to Ironman. Oh, no, of course, no. Um, so, yes, um, so she was ranked maybe 60th, 80th in the world, and um, uh, I had seen her. Um, I'd seen some characteristics that I really liked um, from her, and we got to talking and, and she joined. And... Um, she was very, very capable woman, and we taught her how to swim properly. And um, so she, you know, was in the end probably only fifteen to twenty seconds back from the first pack. So she was really in the hunt for the mm-hmm. the race right from the get go for those few years, and we made a very substantial difference to her outcome. Um, probably didn't change her running that much. A little bit made her biking stronger. Certainly taught her how to race and so forth but um she got dropped from the german program as soon as she joins me and unfortunately the germans um interfered with us in that subsequent year when she was uh actually she was going into hamburg as number one in the world so it was a nice transition 60th to 70th to second to first two races three races to go and unfortunately yeah, behind my back, they did some did some um, some stuff that really um, challenged me because um, I also coached Jody Stimson at the time, who was number two in the world. Yeah, so I was coaching number one and number two in the world, 
And I think um, the Federation and, and her current coach had put enough self-doubt in her mind that I was potentially capable of um, favorite favoritism and so forth. So, yeah, it was just a really unfortunate sort of thing. It rocked me pretty hard. Mm. Um, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't accept that I'd done that much, um, helping her financially even get through to some races and so forth, that we would then have this um, challenge uh, a, a couple of years later. And, you know, she's apologized a number of times since. Um, but, you know, athletes are learning at the same time. Mm. Uh, when you're going from 60th to first, at, as, at first you've got 100 advisors. The, the federation were throwing money back at her and wanted her back and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, that was just really unfortunate. So, and, you know, history has proved that she's done an extremely great job at um, Ironman, but she had a, a woeful next four years, three or four years at ITU, mm. which was unfortunate. You always seem to have more female members in your squads, certainly in your in the, the D squad, your, your private group. Mm. Was that was that by design or did you just sort of have some early success and then more female athletes wanted to join? Or... A, third, a long question is that because perhaps females feel like they need somebody or they're happier to have somebody that's helping to guide them whereas a lot of the guys feel like they can do it on their own i would often i would always have guys um they just weren't superstar guys so um all the way through uh uh yeah just i've, I've always had guys um and they are really good um training partners for the girls in part they are also talented people themselves, but most of the guys. So, for instance, you you wouldn't recognise that I had guys, but in like 2012 or 13, I had um, four different guys go on World Cup podiums. Mm-hmm. One guy, you know, Greg Raoul, he, he runs Posse Posse in France. He he won a World Cup. Um, Matt Chabot came second to Javier Gomez in Malulaba. Mm-hmm. Uh, Declan, Declan, uh, as a twenty-year-old, came third in under twenty-three worlds in London, mm. one year, at two, two twelve or two thirteen, and came podiumed at Tizzy. You know, I had guys, um, but they never ranked because I, at the time I might have had the top five five girls in the world in in the top ten. Mm. So you and everyone else would have heard about the success of the the girls. Um, but the guys just weren't as good. Mm. So um, the following year, 2014, I had four guys. They all went 20th at a World Series race, 20th Mm. to 25th. But you know what? It's pretty hard being third or fourth in your country. Funding dries up. Mm. You get paid nothing for 20th and beyond at a World Series. Mm. Um, these, These boys were decent athletes. But, you know, like, you know, the Brits have had some outrageously um, successful males, but you've also had some males that are in the 15s to 20s to 25s, Mm -hmm. right, who do their whole career and never actually go any that much better than that. And Mm -hmm. they've still got a lot out of themselves and their coaches have still got a lot out of themselves. It's just it's easier in the girls. It's not as competitive. Yeah, I did did know that you had... um some guys in your squad um but a bit like brett as well he has 
a lot of high profile females. And I wondered if there was just some sort of, there's a, there's a coaching profile that seems to attract females more or whether that's just a, a genetic trait that females like to be part of a group more than the guys and who feel like they can do it on their own. Well, in part, the guys do, they, they think they can do it on their own and they're, they're, um, guys are often not the top guys, but you know, some of the guys I work with were pretty soft compared to girls. Mm-hmm. You know, poor guys, you know. Um <laughs> the girls were as hard as nails. You know, they'd um yeah, once it, what, if a guy told you he had a sore knee or a leg or something, you'd just go, Oh yeah. If a girl told you she had a sore leg, it was about to fall off. Right. You know, they're just tougher and um they want to work with you by and large. And it's yeah, it just I guess um, I had more success with girls and um, more successful or potentially more successful girls joined um, afterwards. So I just I just did the best. I, I just tried to, you know, squeeze the towel dry of talent of all the athletes I ever worked with and some were top 20 at a World Series, some were on a podium and some were like there was one girl from Hungary, Zita, Zabo, mm. who after many, many years had not got any better than 25th at a European champs, but we got her to 10th. Mm-hmm. I think it was 8th or 10th one year, and it was like changing her life. And, and the same year I had number two in the world, Lisa, and I felt just as happy as a coach for making such substantial changes in both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, in in another of the interviews I, I read about you, you seem to have a lot of um, a lot of other practitioners working with you. You know, so you created a team. Did did that philosophy stem from when you were at the Queensland uh, Institute? You know, and something then you took into your own private group. That that obviously there were experts that could add add value to the squad that you perhaps couldn't couldn't add on your own. Okay, um, so I had a full time physio that traveled with me so i'm just a private team right i got no funding from anybody mm-hmm. no nothing zero from federations and so i had my own private physio and um and my wife is a dietitian and so she helps with um, some of the clinical side of dietetics and i had russell martindale who um was from edinburgh and he was the sports psych who worked with the team but mostly he worked with me so he used to come in and do an audit each year, feedback, how's the coach going, all that sort of stuff, and give um, the athletes a chance to provide feedback. But mostly he, I would do the sports psychology myself and he would help me learn how to do things. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much the team. Um, but because I was working with um, the best of, you know, one of the best Italians or one of the best Swedes, um, the best Swiss, I got access to the sports scientists that they would work in their country. And I was able to learn the different approaches. Mm. Um, in the end, um, and I was pretty hands-on, I was pretty good at doing things physically myself. So, you know, the physio and I would be down on the track and two two of the athletes would need their foot uh unlocked you know tallow joint was a bit locked they'd know it was a bit locked when they warmed up um the physio and i were down on the track um loosening things up you know so we 
we literally did work at the field of play, mm-hmm. um, not afterwards. So we and the athletes got sophisticated enough to be able to jump out of a swim session um, and tell me, look, it's just not right today. And I'd say, yes, you know, Lisa, you're pressing wider. And so his internal shoulder range of motion mm-hmm. needed some work. So there and then we'd we'd work on the posterior capsule and then throw it back in the pool. Mm. Very interesting. Um, uh, again, something else I read was about this. Um, you you asked the athletes to score their overtraining markers for you um, in order to help build their consistency. And I all I also read something which I really I really was impressed with and and liked. Although I shouldn't have been surprised, was that you said I would prefer an athlete to train a little bit below what they're actually their actual capacity in order to be able to sustain their workload for 18 months rather than having them training 100% and then getting injured and ill and missing blocks of training. Um, yeah. So, that, I mean, that must that must be very difficult to persuade an athlete to do. So that um, how, how did you sort of introduce that whole philosophy within the group with the different personalities? Well, it was about doing a really good job, a sustained good job. So you know yourself that if you can keep somebody healthy, mm. motivated, and moving forward in the right direction for 18 months, you can make a massive difference. Whereas if it's on and off, sickness, illness. So we obviously spend a lot of time getting those things right, um, overtraining markers. So the athletes that you work with, all of the ones, um, all the very best ones, they're a bit quirky, right? They don't stop when they should um but if you as a coach are very um, consistent with your messaging as in we're just trying to do a good job here and if i can pick 70 percent of the right things to do at the right time then i've probably done better than most coaches Mm. but i have no there's no uh, readout that gives me exactly how you turn up to training so i used to walk up to them ask them a question look at their body language. If I had a suspicion that something wasn't quite right, I'd ask them their numbers. They would also know what their numbers are, anxiety, sleep quality, mm-hmm. you know, just the basics, really basic stuff. But they they would also know that if there was a recovery day, their numbers are still going out of whack, then that's not a good thing. Or two poor nights of sleep in a row, that's not a good thing. One, you can handle. Two, is 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 a bit more tetchy. Um, so I guess we just set up a system that was um, encouraging of them to be adults, um, to be in charge, um, but also I had enough systems and checks that I would um, know if somebody was likely overtrained. But you can't know for certain. Um, and you know, I didn't overtrain. I overtrained a couple of folk in my life of coaching. It was about 12 years apart. And I went and spoke um, to the primary authors of all of the best papers um, each of those times. So there was only one guy who didn't want to talk to me. He was too busy. But I spoke to the primary authors of the latest research on overtraining um, between 12 years. So I set up the system once, I screwed up, overtrained somebody, and then it was Kev Clark 
who's oh, yeah, a former yeah. Scottish, uh, who's a coach over in Edmonton. I trained him, overtrained him pretty badly. I went and checked to see what I really should be doing uh, in terms of overtraining markers. And then I also um, got it wrong with one other 12 years later. And I went back and I thought, right, well, what's really changed? And um, nothing much had really changed, actually, mm. for me at the time. And But I... I went to the the depth of um, research as to talk to each of the the primary authors. Not you know I can read the paper, but I want a bit more insight into what they found. Mm. And um, so yeah, part of our success was keeping people healthy, but also part of it was because they helped me make good decisions. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading that the Australian Institute of Sport had done um, some research on these recovery markers i think they created a table of things like soreness fatigue um quality of sleep mood um and they asked athletes to score one to five i think one being one being good and five being you know rubbish um and i remember picking i remember reading about that and thinking oh that you know asking jackie you know whether he thought we should use that with our athletes so we created this excel spreadsheet and asked them just to fill it in every day um yes. and that was before the garmin watch told you you're overtraining or you recovered or you could you know you had a whoop to wear or an aura ring um and it, and it for those who engaged in it it did seem to have an influence on them that was probably something you were able to tap into was it with you being at ais would they have been done around the same time well, at the at the time, I did some research, um, and the, the probably the smiley play, face. If you pick the smiley versus unsmiley uh, versus mm-hmm. neutral face, that was probably where it was at at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I did more research, and I, uh, you know, I worked out a system that I could use. Um, and then, of course, as a coach, you become very busy, right? You have little things that you do well. And you're always looking around, but, um, you know, I'd moved away from Australia quite a bit over those next bunch of years, mm. living in the States and and uh, over in the UK there for a while and so forth. So I, I probably I was a, not so aware of what Australia was doing. I had another guest on the show recently, a gentleman called Brian McKenzie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He, he developed CrossFit Endurance. Um, mm-hmm. He does a lot of stuff now on breathing and uh um, he he mentioned Dan Faff actually and spending some time there. So this amongst all of you top practitioners and coaches, there are names that keep cropping up as mentors and sort of sources mm-hmm. of valuable information. But he yeah. he worked with a whole load of um, elite athletes from different sports, you know, baseball, surfing, um, and he was saying that he did the bit of research where he was asking them to rank um, all those things that we just mentioned. And the one that kept coming up, which seemed to correlate with good training performances, less than good training performances, was mood. Mm. Um, and again, I, I remember from the Australian Institute of Sports stuff that um, your motivation to train or your mood on a particular day was a particularly high indicator of um, how well you were dealing with the training load. Yeah, because you're trying to get a sense of uh, nervous system, right? Overtraining is largely nervous system Mm -hmm. and anxiety sleep quality tossing and turning before you go to sleep Mm -hmm. your anxiety mood state yeah it's basically nervous system fatigue Mm -hmm. and so you're just getting getting a handle on that um yeah so but it's all part of the rich chemistry of of uh trying to put an athlete together so keep them healthy (laughs) pick races that are important and useful for them 
at their stage of development. Don't overrace them in, mm. you know, I've, I'm now a selector for the AIS uh, Australia for triathlon for the Olympic team. And um, people are still making errors, I, I believe, in picking people for races that they really shouldn't be part of, mm. hoping that uh, they're going to go well at something. Whereas in my day, I guess I trained people with the demands in mind and I knew from the training data and what I'd seen amongst our group whether they'd go well or not. So don't hope. It wasn't about hope. <laughs> it was about knowing. I, I pretty much knew that somebody would likely go X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. in, a, in a particular race mm. um, or a, a new or a you know, a particular race design, you know, a hilly race versus a hot race versus a cold race, mm-hmm. wetsuit swim, you know, you get to know your athletes and you know their weaknesses and you also know what you've been working on too mm. and how well they've coped. Doing training races within training gives you a good insight, especially if you've got other good athletes around. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can see who's going to cope and who's not. And so by and large, that was one of the things I, I think I did quite well was you know, pick the right combination of races and years. Can I just ask you about when, when you had your squads, you travelled around the world. Um, I know you used to like Davos um, in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, you'd go to Sedona in yes. um, Arizona. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, same, al- same altitude exactly. But not particularly uh, high altitude. About 1,600 metres, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, what was it about those particular venues then? Um, and yeah, you know, I'm really sort of coming along to your your thoughts on altitude as a um, you know as a benefit for athletes because I know I, I work with some Olympic swimmers um, in the UK leading up to Sydney Games, and some of them like going to altitude. They used to go to Phoenix and and um, yeah. and train there, and some of them didn't like going because they felt that they didn't they didn't actually benefit, and it took too much time, you know, getting used to it that they could just do valuable training at home. So they went up to Flagstaff, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is quite high, right? 2,000 metres or so, 2,100. Mm. So 1,600 seemed to be a bit of a sweet spot. And I took my athletes there, but we were preparing for a race, but we were also there for months and months and months, year upon year. So Davos and um, Sedona were up until London and also included um, Hawaii prep for a few athletes like Chris McCormack, I, I coached that year, and mm-hmm. Bart Arnott's mm-hmm. um, for Hawaii. And so we used um, those those areas at medium altitude, which is not high enough to kill anyone, and it's it's a stimulus still. So after about a week, you can you can your heart rate's back down to mm-hmm. what it would normally be. Um, so you've had a blood increase, and it, I would call it the backpack effect as well. Everything's a little harder, so you're almost mm-hmm. training with a backpack on. Mm. And whether you're a, a high responder or a not so great responder, um, you would um, have a backpack effect. So you're effectively overtraining a little, and um, everything's a little bit harder but you adapt. And uh, it's different to, for instance, um, you know, the Brits might go to um, St. Moritz for a four-week camp. Mm. It's a discrete camp. So 1,600 would be too low. Higher is better. 
We also went to we went to Kenya three times, and I took all my athletes there, mm-hmm. you know, to train with the Kenyans in Eta, and that was two thousand three hundred meters. Wow! And two thousand three hundred is pretty much what the Norwegians do as well in April, you know, when they go up to down to Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty high, but if you've had number of um, number of uh, altitude exposures, you can handle that, and it's only for a discrete period. So most people get a a great boost from it and the boost is a little bit day dependent so you have to do your homework on how many days can you come down from that that training location to race or you have to then go somewhere else and do the last prep somewhere but um it seems to have a benefit for most folk and um if you're there as a squad you know i didn't have the luxury of having lots of dollars to fly people in and out so we were there in Davos and we still raced Hamburg. We still raced Tizzy. We still raced in the prep for mm-hmm. Olympic Games mm-hmm. and for the previous year. So we were there for four years in a row from 2009 to 2012 in Davos. And it was great, great environment. You could ride your bike up Flula Pass up over 2,300. Mm-hmm. You could run in the hills way over 2,000. Um yeah, in different places like that. And I'd also use a place called Morzine mm-hmm. in France. Yeah, I'm familiar with Morzine. My, my sister lives there. Yeah, which is a pretty nice expat sort of place. Mm. Lots of expats there. Um, great climbs up to Avoria. Uh, we got strong enough that we'd warm up in, up to the mountains to do our mm-hmm. really high-intensity work. So we'd use different altitudes. So uh, at times we'd sleep up at Avoria. And you know, Lake Leman is it Avion Leban is only about 30 minute drive down to Lake mm-hmm. Leman. And so we mm-hmm. could do on the track down there, um, we could do pretty much sea level, open water swims and and uh track at sea mm-hmm. level and Morzine's about twelve hundred meters. Yeah. Where you know the big swimming pool there and there's a big there's a bit of a running track, a running forest right next to a swimming pool we used a lot mm-hmm. and um, different places like that and, and then Avoria being the ski resort at the top. So you can you can get a bit fancy or you can keep it quite simple. Um, we uh, we still use altitude. I, I sent Sue to altitude just recently, you mm-hmm. know, the 70-year-old. She's come back and she's got a boost and her running is better. Wow. We'll use that boost to train her harder. So she has a bit more of an engine capacity to get extra work done right now. So um you you dismantled the D squad eventually, didn't you? I think I understood you'd retired, although Sue said that you'd come out of retirement to work with her. Are there any other athletes that you're working with now? Um or are you completely retired from coaching? Um yeah, look, in 2016, at uh, 2.15, I had a mass exodus from my squad. I think I lost all but four athletes from my squad uh, for 2.16. Um, I picked up Mary Rabi, who ended up 11th at Rio, and I had, um, yeah, three others, um, including Jody, Lisa, and um, a lady from Austria, uh, um, Julia Hauser who's now gone to two Olympics. Um, and um, so I finished up after Rio and I'd done four Olympics since um, Sydney. 
coached 16 athletes and coached medalists and you know I've done a lot of things so um, I had other things I needed I wanted to do in my life so I disbanded the squad and um, yeah I I didn't coach anyone I built a boat I built a catamaran for a few years and we've subsequently used that to go up the coast for three or four months each winter for the last two years and um so i've been doing other things now um i just happened to meet sue when i was over in florida last year helping jody simpson just get back on track a little mm-hmm. so yeah i came out of retirement just to help jody and i met sue who asked me to you know teach her how to run for a couple of sessions um and before I knew it, I was I was now working with Sue on her biking. And before I knew it, I was working with Sue on her swimming. So she had a very persuasive way of trying mm-hmm. to hook me in. Mm-hmm. And now I'm working with her. So she's my my one and only age grouper. And you probably you might know that I'd never worked with age groupers before. So I've picked a 70-year-old um age grouper to work with as my first, pretty much. Yeah. And you know, in one of those interviews, I I read that one of your comments was that coaching was your passionate hobby. Um, so that mm. made me think, well, that must have been quite difficult for you to tip it all in then at that point, um, and not not be a coach. Um, well, look, um, yes and no. Um, I you know, life's too short sometimes, Simon. Um, the sport was heading in which direction? Um, it was it was not easy being a private head coach, you know, a coach of a squad. Mm. Um, federations um, didn't hand me athletes. One one federation handed me one athlete, one year, in my entire coaching career with D Squad. So even though I had that much success, nobody handed me any athletes mm. for some reason, which is kind of weird because I was pretty good at the time. And you would think if they had a difficult customer who you know, might have uh, the chance to improve. Doesn't matter if they're improved by me or somebody else in their country. So, um, it you know there was there was a number of reasons, but um, and also I'm married and um, I have a great wife. And um, you know, do you need to do five Olympics, six, seven? You know, mm-hmm. where where's it all ends and where you know? So. Um, yeah, I was, I was pretty happy to move on. But as soon as I moved on, I got asked by the Japanese to help uh, with the women's team. So I did some consultancy there. And uh, there was one year where the Japanese girls did really great. And that was that was fabulous. So I really enjoyed working with them. But I would go from the States where I lived. I would go to Australia to build my boat. I would then fly to the Pyrenees to work with the Japanese. And then I'd fly home to the States. So it was a bit crazy. Um, and since then, I did a bit of consulting with Triathlon Australia coaching coaches um, and helped one or two athletes, um, uh, taught uh, Ash Gentle how to swim and uh, a few years ago and just a few projects here and there. But by and large, by and large, um, I'm enjoying life. I've just come back from hiking mm. at uh, base camp in Nepal and uh yes you know it's not not such a bad existence now well i'm so happy that you decided that you'd you'd like to share all of that with us darren it's been a it's been a great conversation i've really you know 
enjoyed the insights into your philosophies around swimming and uh, around the sort of the importance of the technical aspects and the process focused and you know keeping athletes healthy they're all lessons very very powerful lessons that um any athlete can take on board regardless of, of what sport they're in so thank you for being so sharing and open with all of that i really really appreciate it yes yeah, my pleasure absolutely okay uh hopefully we'll get you on at another point maybe we can get you on and do a do a, a three-way conversation with jack and um see what we come up with there yeah that'll be great fun yeah uh, i enjoyed chatting with you thanks simon i don't do this very often as you probably are aware yeah, so even more appreciative of your time, Darren. So great to speak with you, Darren Smith, all the way from uh, New South Wales in Australia. Thank you for being here. Yeah, well, you have a great day. Okay, see ya. See you, Simon. Thank you again to Darren for being my guest on the show this week. Darren Smith thinks outside the box about everything, and he's been very creative in his pr- approach to triathlon coaching. So whether you're self-coached or you're a coach working with other athletes, I hope that you were able to find a nugget or two from this conversation that you can put to good use. Now, if you haven't already listened to them, please check out our new bite-sized podcast episode, which is released every Saturday. These are around 10 minutes in length, and I share some insights on very specific topics. Now, when you finish listening to me here, please make sure you check out the show notes for links to all of the items that we've mentioned in today's show and from previous weeks. And if you've got a couple of minutes, perhaps you could share this episode with just one person who you think could benefit. And that would be absolutely amazing. And if you've got a couple more minutes, then I'd really appreciate it if you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once the episode has ended. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll have another great guest in seven days' time and I hope that you'll be able to join me. And in the meantime... Please remember to check out those bite-sized episodes which come out on Saturday.